Hi, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number five. I'm Dave. And I'm Ashley. And this is the podcast all about blind spots. We're a couple getting to know each other better by sharing the essential movies and guilty pleasures from our pasts. This time, it was Ashley's turn to pick the movie. What did you choose for us? I chose The Fog of War uh, by the great documentary jock documentarian uh, Errol Morris, um, who's directed many great documentaries. Um, this, I don't, maybe was the first one I saw. I know it was the first one I saw in the theater. Um, I think I may have seen one of his earlier works before, but uh, it's a fantastic documentary about uh, former U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara um, and all about his life and the lessons he learned from decades in public policy and during various wars and... Um, uh, it really opened my eyes to a bunch of uh, historical stuff that I wasn't aware of because um, when you go to school in the 80s and early 90s, they didn't really cover the Vietnam War or like really they make it up to World War II and then they stop or that's what they did at the time. I'm sure they've yeah. gotten more. Um, so, yeah, that's what we decided to talk about. Oh, good. So time. you, we had the same experience because <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I told you I was a little intimidated about watching this film and talking about it because my education was the same way. Of course, I studied this stuff long, long ago, high school, you know, probably the last time yeah. I didn't take any history classes. And, you know, I know like the cursory details about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Vietnam War and stuff like that, but I really didn't know anything about Robert McNamara. So I was like, ah, I don't have no context for yeah. to, to look at this film. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because it was so close because it was all stuff that happened during my our parent or my parents' lifetime, your parents' lifetime mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I remember my parents would talk about um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, what what it was like for them, and essentially they were in they were children at the times, you know, twelve, thirteen, and like their experience of it is that they had to hide under their desks. That was their experience. Duck and cover. Yeah, exactly. They had the the cartoons where where, um, where you yeah got under a desk to save yourself from the nuclear blast that was coming. So. I think one of the first things we need to do is we kind of need to set up what this film, how this film treats its subject. We say it's a documentary about Robert McNamara. Can you tell us about how the film is set up? What do, what do we see? What do we hear? What, how does this work? So in Errol Morse's typical style, he sort of just focuses on the one person. So a lot of the interview is a static shot of Robert McNamara talking and then it's interspersed with shots from uh, previous historical footage. Archival footage. Yeah. Found footage. Um, so it's, I mean, it's it's a very intimate, I think, portrait of him because it really, a lot of shots are just him looking at the camera talking. And there's a little bit you can hear um, I, what I guess is Errol Morris in the background asking some questions sometime, but... He, he doesn't do it a lot no. in his movies, but he in some of them he interacts more. Yeah. <laughs> he he's the one who patented his whole camera system. Have you ever heard or no. anything about this? He has some kind of setup with like two-way mirrors and all this kind of stuff. So the subject that he's interviewing appears to be pretty much looking dead on oh, at the camera. At and the subject is getting to see Errol Morris as if they're talking to him. So they're make they're getting to make eye contact with him when they do that interview. So it feels very natural in a way, but we're not used to quite seeing that intimate uh, uh, 
talking head in a movie. Yeah. So I think that's how it works. But he had his whole like camera box mirror system thing that he always uses. Yeah. I so the first thing that really hit me about this movie, and I'm going to go about halfway into it. Um, I found the whole thing revolutionary because I really did not know much about that whole time frame from from World War II until you know all the wars and conflicts that we were involved in during that time but this guy is like um he's like um tom hanks in uh, forrest gump or something he was there for all of that he's like zelig (laughs) yeah he's 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 like zelig yeah he's like the player who is he's like the figure that's always there (laughs) Mm -hmm. but with mcnamara he's like a key figure yeah one of the things that was fascinating and mind-boggling to me is that a single like one person could be so poised to be uh, a figure that affected hundreds of thousands of people and lives and deaths and like um, huge conflicts, the ones that made the 20th century. And there's a calculating business-like rational academic guy who's, who's there, you know, making the tallies and, and has the ear of the president and, and it's, crazy yeah it was it's pretty insane so he uh came up through stanford um just at the right time um to just as the depression was happening and then world war ii was starting to gear up and um he was a i think statistician or he studied philosophy i can't remember exactly it's in the movie he did study philosophy and somehow he and i believe yeah. he ended up in some but kind of you know everyone during world war ii everyone had to join the war every able-bodied man who could participate was participating in the war in some way so he got in the army statistics office essentially through his connections at um i think he was at harvard at the time and, um, you know, ended up, like, influencing the way that they were fighting the war in the Pacific by the, you know, efficiency statistics that he was doing and stuff like that. I oh, mean, that's right. They, yeah. moved, they moved the bombing runs from India to the Mariana Islands or something so they could uh, bomb Japan more easily. Yeah. So, well, and that, to me, that was the thing that um, kind of blew my mind when they talk about the incendiary bombs that they drop over Japan, because, you know, everybody in history, we learn about how the war ended in the Pacific Theater, which is the two um, nuclear bombs over Nagasaki and um, Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Um, But they don't talk about the other war, because we didn't send any troops into Japan at all. Um, But what was fascinating and terrifying and awful to me is that we used these incendiary bombs, which essentially caused all of Japan, which is made of wood, to catch on fire. So in one night, I think they burned One down. night, uh, most of Japan, 100,000 people? 100,000 people in Tokyo. In Tokyo That was alone. one night. Yeah. And um, there's a remarkable moment in the film where Errol Morris like shows the maps and he mm. does like a, a really quick cut. It gradually gets faster and faster doing um, a, a Japanese city and it's, uh, it's casualties with a similar sized um, U.S. city. So it'll be like Nagasaki, Cincinnati. And, mm. and you see them boom, 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 boom with the casualty rates and all of that, how many of those fire bombs there were. And were there in the 70s or 80s or something like that? I don't want to get that wrong, but yeah, it but was. It's, 
it was tons and tons of bombs that I mean, and this was what ended the what's fascinating is what ended the war were the two nuclear bombs, which of course were devastating. But what's hard for me to believe is that Japan kept fighting after we had, you know, destroyed, you know, most of their major infrastructure in most of their major cities in the country. So it's um he gets into it a little bit later about not understanding the motives of our enemy. He talks about that in Vietnam mm-hmm. as well. But I think that maybe that there may be a similar misconception of what Japan was fighting for. Um, and we just didn't take the time to understand a culture that was so different than our own. Um, but I, I mean, like to me that just, when I saw that in the theater, it just, my stomach dropped. I couldn't believe how much of this country we had destroyed. Um, well, and when you, you know, when there's a certain point where you realize how much we devastated like Germany mm-hmm. and, and Europe and stuff too. You don't yeah. hear so much about it. No, anymore. we don't. We don't hear about all that. That entire. I mean, I know. You know, from from my personal reading, you know how Britain was affected during mm-hmm. the war. You know that it was bombed similarly by Germany, but I had no concept of how devastated Japan was after the war. I'll just say that that what is a remarkable moment for me is when Robert McNamara talks about how the proportionality of what we did to Japan. Like if you really look at it in a moral way, um, that he doesn't think that, I mean, like he essentially called anyone who call who was responsible for calling those shots war criminals, you know, and we aren't, they weren't considered war criminals because the U S won the war. Well, that was his point. He said, if we weren't the winners, don't you think we would essentially, wouldn't we be the war criminals? What, the only thing that, in other words, the only thing that makes us the, not war criminals is the fact that we're on the winning side. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and like I should point out that these weren't military targets because at the time the technology wasn't there. It wasn't even as good as we have it now where they could distinguish between... It's 100,000 civilians, civilians that they're talking about yeah. in the Tokyo bombing alone on that single night. And I think what I wanted to say was the archival footage that they found just took your breath away. Mm -hmm. I think I stopped it because he was talking at the same point and I couldn't get the idea that he was saying. I had to listen to it two or three times because I was sitting there watching the aerial footage of the bombs slowly, like thousands of bombs or a payload being dropped on Japan. Well, we don't know if it's Japan. It's archival footage and so there's a lot of filmmaking mumbo jumbo. But watching the actual footage of the um, bombs hitting the ground and bursting and exploding, and then the quiet and then the fires yeah, erupting all over the place. So I was wondering as we're watching this, um, because we're, we're fans of uh, Japanese filmmakers that came about post-war, so I always wonder, like, how did this affect, you know, all the major filmmakers? Because a lot of, you know, the Japan film industry came out of the ashes of that. and It's true. So this makes me want to take you yeah. by the hand. <laughs> and I'm sitting a few inches away from, say, from the post-war Kurosawa set, which is about civilian life in post, like right after this, right as the dust settles, literally, as Japan is rebuilding itself in their slums and um, bombing sites and, you know, families and people and businesses starting up again. And so there's a lot of stuff that kind of documented that 
that side of it narratively, you know, in, yeah. in some of the films <laughs> and by the filmmakers I love, you know? Yeah. So this is one thing that we didn't mention that I think it's important to, especially because we're talking about some of the points that McNamara makes is um, the framing device, which we didn't, I don't think we meant, did you mention in the title, 11 Lessons? How, is- so the title, the full, I guess there's a subtitle, The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. Um, so it's kind of broken down into, and I, I was reading on Wikipedia, it actually comes from the structure of one of his books that broke down things into various lessons. So he's taken some of the more, I guess, cinematic ones and, and, yeah. and, you know, and it's like stuff like never say never. My favorite one is the having empathy, empathy for your enemies. I wrote a bunch of them down because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought it could focus um, some of what we talk about, but the, that was one of the ones that yeah. stuck in my mind. It's one of the points of the film, I think, is empathize with your enemy. Yeah. And he tells the wonderful story about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, and that's the first story. In the, so he doesn't go in uh, chronological order. He goes in the letter, in, in the but order of But it roughly sort of yeah. works out. But we, then he, starts, back, yeah. he starts with the Cuban Missile Crisis in 64, I guess. Yeah. Or 63. See, that's a hook. Yeah. It gets us interested. Or and maybe then, it's 62. And then anyway. you go back and deal with his early life, I think, till till he gets to yeah. that point again. Um, but to me, that was, that was, it's a, it's a really good hook because it was something that I was familiar with. My parents talked about, um, their experiences during that time frame and, you know, they always have the 11 days in November and, and all of that sort of thing. Is that right? Is it 11 days in November or 11 days in October? Anyway, (laughs) um, but you know, he talks about how close we were to essentially, destroying the culture of the United States and Russia just over, you know, something silly. And they talk about like... Do you remember how this comes up in yeah. the film where he, he shows the um, the the keepsake that Kennedy got, gave him, which was a, a, a metal engraved calendar mm-hmm. with those days marked off? Yeah. The, those, the days that we were... This close. Moments away from nuclear annihilation. Well, and then he goes back later after he's told the story and told some other stuff. He goes back later and talks about um, how Castro, he met, had a meeting with Castro later. And Castro was like, I told Khrushchev to blow you guys up, essentially. You know, I told him to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So it was just that, that they, they did their best guess to guess who was going to behave in what way. Um, I think he talks about two uh, telegrams that they got. One from Khrushchev, a that soft was, one yeah. that that was left some room, and one that was very hard line, like show it, yeah, you know, bring it on. And they had to figure out, they had to advise Kennedy on which message to respond. So they responded to the soft one, and that. Um, but uh, again, because he's a- this, <laughs> and it wasn't McNamara; it was somebody yeah. else in the room. Um, uh, I, I can't remember. He was the former ambassador to Russia. Right. And he said, look, we can play this in a way that, you know, where Khrushchev will take it as a win, you know. Yeah. If if he can say that, I, hey, I, I, I kept the U.S. from, you know, annihilating. From, from Cuba. From, 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 <laughs> from blowing up Cuba. They're taking missiles out of Turkey or whatever, you know. I remember feeling, and I still do feel very, very grateful that we had those particular men in that room at that time. I and I, you know, was perhaps a little fearful for the men that are in 
that room now, you know, <laughs> um, well, to hear the wisdom and look the, at the, the wisdom and the intellect yeah. and the analytical ability of, say, Robert McNamara and the people in Kennedy's cabinet then. Yeah. And and just compare it to, <laughs> well, you know, some it's, of the people who might be in the room now. Or, it's, or, it's a little alarming when you think of it that way. And I hope that, um, but it's it's amazing how a few men could have, you know, decide the fates of an entire country. You know, that those are the kind well, of decisions that have to be made. Interestingly, lesson number two was rationality will not save us. Yeah. And then I think that ties back to that same story. Mm. And the point, I think, that... that Fidel Castro wasn't rational about it. And despite having all of these rational people in the room and happening to guess the right response, um, it could have gone the other way. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and I guess the thing that blew my mind at the time when I saw this, I would have been 22. um, And to me, it just felt like we were that close to, I mean, like to me never existing. Like if, if there had been a massive nuclear war in 1960, I mean, like, my parents were 11 and 12 years old. I never would have existed. The society as we know it today never would have existed. And that just, it kind of blew my mind at the time. It's still kind of, like, well, weird to think about. And what you, you know? get in this documentary is firsthand commentary by somebody who was in the room. Yeah. Somebody who played a part who actually helped make these decisions who was one of the advisors who had to deal who had to live with not knowing mm-hmm. the outcome and trying to do the best anyway it's um it's crazy i mean i i really had never seen a piece of journalism or document documentary like this ever before it's you know? riveting yeah all the more so because it's real and it decided our fates yeah. as a nation as a world yeah um so I want to talk a little bit more about Errol Morris, uh, about how this, about some of the artifice yeah. of this movie. I mean, it's never just a straight documentary or a straight interview. Um, you have not only he can orchestrate, you know, all of that found footage and archival stuff. I think even the fact that we have the eleven lessons. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I don't. I'm curious now. That you you mentioned that um, some this idea of lessons came out of Rock, Robert McNamara's writings, but I took I read the film as this is Errol Moore as a film editor and director having structured the interview material he got, and he's the one saying these are the lessons I'm imposing on the interview, you know, on the film as I received it. I mean, I, I don't feel like McNamara is like. You know, yeah. Unless those actually came out of well, I think specifically th- from his book, it feels to me like the filmmaker organizing the material and saying this section is about you know empathize with your enemy. Yeah. Well, I think that he probably like I don't know. I don't think word for word these were lessons that were pulled from his book. Mostly because I was looking at Wikipedia and they list a lot a lot more lessons that came from these various writings that he had. So I think that it was very much was an editorial choice by, you know, Errol Morris, which ones he were, he was going to choose, which ones he was going to highlight, how he was going to choose to highlight, you know, each each one of those. Like, uh, the there's one that's like get the data, which I just thought was funny but i mean essentially it comes from his time working at the ford corporation where he was brought in to improve ford sales 
um, after the war because Ford wasn't doing very well. Um, you know, after the heyday of Model T, it kind of was just existing. Um, so he came in and he looked at price points and he they introduced a cheaper car and then. But Ford he saw the data on yeah. um, on accidents. fatalities, yeah, on yeah. accidents well, and fatalities. Yeah, I was going to get to like, that. What's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, he he talks about how he's hearing about all these accidents, like forty thousand people are dying every year in car accidents. So he was like, you know, how do we how do we make this stop happen happening? Um, so they looked at all these data on statistics from accidents and like he had this great story about how, you know, ask your wife about, um, the eggs at the store, like when she brings eggs home and she sets the (laughs) the basket on the, the, the carton on the counter, do they crack? Yeah. When she sets them down on the counter. And, and they don't, she's like, no, they don't. Um, it's like, we need to build a better carton. That's what we need to do. But out of this came seatbelts. Seatbelts and the Ford Falcon, you know, collapsible from his steering recommendations wheels too, came yeah. collapsible steering wheels, the softened, softened, um, uh, you know, front of the cab, uh, yeah, um, dashboard, dashboard. Thank you, and seatbelts and seatbelts, which have saved countless lives, so, and which is really weird when you start to think about the well and the juxtaposition between that's where I'm going. Tokyo, the mathematics of, of mortality in this movie is you know hundred thousand firebombing of civilians one night in Tokyo, millions upon millions of people with seatbelts on forever. I mean, how do you start to deal with that kind of a tally sheet that yeah. one man's influence has? You yeah. know, it's crazy. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was interesting. And he but has it, interesting shots, too, of them dropping uh, human skulls down mm-hmm. a... So this is the kind of thing <laughs> I'm getting at yeah. that Errol Morris does. You've seen The Thin Blue Line, which I think was, it was not as first. It's the first one that I saw, mm. but that's the one about the Texas um, the Texas uh, police officer killing and the man who's wrongly accused. And, and the film got the guy out off the hook. You know, basically yeah. the case was reopened. Um, but that was a movie that was so highly formalized and constructed. He reenacted scenes. Yeah. There was slow motion. There was startling colors and slow motion um, shots of the, the police lights flashing on the street and the cup hitting the floor again and again and the chocolate malted you know going every malted yeah we're in the 1950s (laughs) um and uh philip glass music which again we have in this movie but in this movie you have stuff like the the skulls wrapped in the whatever you know falling off the the The, down a stairwell which he must have have reenacted but yeah wrapped in different things um, you have the maps with dominoes set up Mm. and falling 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 as you know and with the threat of you know vietnam goes everything else in the area will go and all of that i think there's even a slow motion um or dominoes in reverse going back up again at the end after some point that he makes um he's talking about um when when that happens he's talking about if he could knowing from his experience if he could go back and recast what would happen if yeah. they dealt something differently and like you know here's like how can you recast this how can you you know figure out what would have happened and he was like well with my experience and you know he could you know he could guess at what was what would happen because he had the power of being in that room you know when it happened um i like the dominoes <laughs> yeah i mean i like these moves but it's certainly something it, it, it's Errol Morris is, is he's never like 
hey, this is a this is a document. It's a fact. Yeah. It's always like this is a film. You know, this is a movie. I am constructing this. I am directing this. I am putting these parts together to make a point. Um, I like the way it works in this movie a lot, and you don't need that much. Mm-mm. I mean, I'm glad that it's it, he's not doing as much with it as he does in like the Thin Blue Line. Um, but it works really well in this movie. And of course, you have the Philip Glass music again, minimalist, yeah. like, nah, 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 nah. but very dramatic. <laughs> One thing, and it's something that I remember from the first time that I saw it, um, I had just started paying attention to what the camera was doing in film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, perhaps that's just because I hadn't watched very many movies where the, the camera was doing interesting things. But um, at the very end, they have an epilogue, and it shows, I mean, everything else has been Robert McNamara sitting in a chair. I'm so glad you're talking about this. Camera's right in front of him. At the very end in the epilogue, they have him driving in his car, and the shots are all of him, parts of his face, in the rearview mirror and the side mirror. And I remember those shots specifically as to, you know, they kind of... I, I don't know, maybe he's trying to make a point, but they all tell bits of the story. But it's mm-hmm. not the whole picture. You know, you see his eyes. And you see smudges ears. of rainy window. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I spent the whole movie, like, waiting for that. I couldn't mm. know. I remember the one thing I remembered you telling me was you had described this shot a couple of times over the last couple of years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, did I miss it? Where is it? And then when it came on, I was I, I wanted to grab you and go, oh, my God. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny because to me, I remember it being a longer section. It's actually a pretty short section um, at the at the end. But I think the point he's trying to make is that Robert McNamara is not he's very forthcoming with his with what he did in World War Two and how awful that was. He's not as forthcoming when it comes to Vietnam, and I don't know if there if there was more there, or it sounded like because that's when Errol Morris starts to like interject there's, more. There's more probing there, yeah. and there's more evasions by mm-hmm. McNamara yeah. when we come up with you know how much needed to happen and where could we have gotten out stuff like that. So, and he essentially at one point puts all the blame on Johnson. Oh, he uh, yeah, puts like, all of it on yeah, Johnson. You know which. I mean, like, I haven't studied extensively, but I know a little bit about that. But, I mean, like, I know that Johnson was not thrilled about having to be there at all. But I also know that he was very much kind of the, one of those, like, you know, we need to show the communist, we mean business kind of people, too. So, you know. I- okay, here's a, here's a fascinating line of maybe. is yeah. I, What if for a moment you like can convince yourself to forget that this is a documentary with Mm. an actual interview subject, Robert S. McNamara, and you think of him as a movie character. Yeah. What is the attitude of this film towards this character? (laughs) What are we supposed to think of him? What does Errol Morris think of him? What do we walk away from this movie? So Errol Morris is 1948. So he would have been, um, about the age that the men were being drafted for for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I think that his experience with him before, you know, meeting him and talking to him was he was this guy that was responsible for recruiting his colleagues mm-hmm. and his friends and 
you know, and possibly sending these people to his death. And so I think he was asking those sorts of questions that they, you know, they were asking the tough questions that mm-hmm. the people were asking back then. He was looking for those answers because he lived that. I mean, he, he saw, you know, his friends being drafted and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, like, I think he went into it a little skeptical about his subject, maybe, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, especially in regards to the Vietnam thing. But I, I don't think that he got the satisfaction that he was looking for really. No, he didn't. He tried several times and you get this incredibly intellectual, analytical, fascinating man who again was at the center of all of this stuff, but he's not someone who really takes much responsibility for the really big things. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, he seems to deflect. He seems to, push it on other people he's ready and willing to talk about everything else and about his role in other ways but um at the end of the day um there's the lesson of hindsight which he talks about yeah but you also see on his face the a struggle to kind of you know how much can i accept yeah, he of didn't the want blame to answer. Of, yeah. the, of the responsibility for any of this. Yeah. He, and I don't know how much he should, but... Yeah. That's, you, def- that's a- I, you see a struggle. I mean, if this were a, a movie character in a narrative film, there's a struggle going on on screen during some of these tougher lines of well, questioning. Well, I think where, where he gets the most truth out of the Vietnam situation is where they talk about... Um, and I mentioned it back when we were talking about Japan, but he really gets into how we didn't have any concept of what the Vietnamese were fighting for. Like, we just didn't know. We hadn't done our research. We didn't understand their culture. You know, we thought that that they were going to join hands with the Chinese communists and communism would have won again. Yeah. But because they were still in Uh that Cold War mentality. But he says that, you know, after time, he's realized that the Vietnamese thought that they were fighting against a colonial power for their own independence. Mm -hmm. So they were, I mean, it's like... They were going to fight for the death. Yeah. It was when Britain came to the United States and we were like, we want you out. We're going to fight until the last man. This was a war of independence. Yeah. Yeah, They'll fight to the last man because they think it's about saving their culture and their society and that we were going to make them slaves for us, Mm -hmm. you know? So that basic misunderstanding is what led to essentially like 25 years of combat and, you know, 60,000 dead Americans. And um, it's a failure of yeah. his earlier lesson about empathize with your enemies. Yeah. They couldn't. They didn't. They they weren't able to understand. They weren't able to see what the well, other side wanted and I think or what they were in for. I think it's interesting that they're able to empathize with Khrushchev, who is European, mm-hmm. versus... Japan or or Vietnamese, where you're working with an Asian culture that's uh-huh. completely oh, different than our Western. Oh, and surely they're just the puppet of uh, some larger yeah, you know, entity. Yeah, you know. you know when you know he's like. It turns out the Vietnamese hated the Chinese. They've been fighting against them for you thousand know, years, thousand years or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, um, that was that was an interesting section. But yeah, I think that both. I mean, like as a viewer, you want more, and and I think the director wanted more and just was unable to get it. I think at the very end he's like I'm just not willing to make a statement about it mm-hmm. in that epilogue statement he's just like the more I say the worse it gets essentially mm-hmm. damn what is it damned if I 
Damned if I do and damned, and damned if, if I, don't. I don't. So he'd yeah. rather be damned if he I'd didn't. rather be damned if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have a, enough time for just uh, final thoughts on the movie. Um, and your experience watching it again. Uh, I really en- enjoyed, uh, you know, having seen it before, it didn't hit quite as hard, but still, you know, it had, it had those powerful moments for me. Um, I guess the thing that really struck me is I remember having a conversation with my father about um, the decision to drop bombs, the nuclear bombs mm-hmm. on, on Japan. Japan. And, you know, he didn't ever, you know, come down on one side or the other, but, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, being the person who decides to drop a nuclear bomb and like weighing what the interests are. So when you're a president of the United States, the, your interest is to save the interest of the American people. So when you're talking about saving American lives, that, you know, he talks about how that must have been the influence for the decision. But I mean, I think Robert McNamara and, 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 you know, I hope we get to a point where, um, we consider all the costs of the things, not just to Americans, but to the world and society. If we start to look bigger, that there's more hope for humanity or something mm-hmm. like that. So, um, it's, a, uh, it's yeah. a timely movie to watch now. Yes. <laughs> I think if you have never seen it, yeah. Um, and I had never seen it, and um, I'm glad that you brought it to my attention and said, "Hey, we're going to do this one this time." <laughs> well, and the other thing is, is this is the movie that really brought me around to documentaries because I hadn't. It's not that I was opposed to documentaries; I just hadn't seen very many of them. I saw maybe Hands on a Hard Body when I was in high school. I haven't seen it. Um, well, maybe that's another one, but um, it really opened up a whole world for me because I really, I mean, Errol Morris documentaries are fantastic, but I make a point to go to good documentaries as much as I possibly can because there's so much that you can learn about the world by, you know, hearing other people's stories. And and I think that documentary is an underappreciated art. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it opened that world to me as well, so... And I have a special thing for documentaries where the hand of the filmmaker is there. And maybe it's because, I don't know, I early on fell for Godard and all that kind of like, uh, you know, self-reflective cinema. This is a movie, that kind of a thing. And uh, what these people like Errol Morris and Werner Herzog can do when they are present in the film, it's a, it's a whole other layer yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the Herzog, I don't know if you ever saw it, but I saw the, Herzog, the, the 3D, uh, the one about the cave painting. I've seen the film, but I didn't see yeah. it in 3D. It's beautiful. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Dreams. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's it's completely his style, but there's relatively, you know, there's it's the cameras moving around the cave. Do you know he had three hours in that cave with a 3D camera? It's amazing. And that's then he came out of it with that film. You have to make it work. And he constantly puts himself in situations where he's got to deliver. Yeah. You know, he's going to go to the South Pole with a camera for three <laughs> weeks or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, one, you know, he's going to do sound himself and bring a cinematographer and they've got to come back with a movie, that kind of a thing. Well, since we're talking about Herzog, I guess I'll finish with the story. What's the, tell us the, the Herzog-Errol st- Morris connection. Um, so apparently Herzog was really wanting Errol Morris to um, finish a project, you know, and he gave him some money to... It's before he had made anything. Yeah, when he, gave, he was talking for years. Yeah. Um, he gave him some money to start a project and he started Vernon, Florida, but didn't finish it. 
And then he heard about um, this pet cemetery um, outside of Berkeley or something like that. And so he went and made a documentary called Gates of Heaven about this pet cemetery. Um, so apparently at some point Herzog had said, if you finish a project, I will eat my shoe. Um, like it's an encouragement thing. So he finished uh, Gates of Heaven. It got... Um, had its premiere. And, and now there's a short <laughs> film called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. In which by Le- Les Blank. By Les Blank, <laughs> who filmed Werner Herzog eating his shoe because Errol Morris made his first film, finally. So, Gates of Heaven, which is also amazing. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think that's about as much time as we have. Thank you for listening. A few um, details. Um, you can find us on Facebook now. We have a Facebook page, Shut Up and Watch This. And you can write us an email if you want to send any feedback on the show. We are at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com. Um, please let people know about the show. One thing that's a super big favor, if you could, um, if you are ever able to head over to iTunes and review the show or give it a star rating or something like that, that'll help other people um, find the show. It'll raise it a little bit in the uh, iTunes algorithms. So um, anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, we will talk to you again in two weeks. And I have not yet decided the movie, so we may not be doing that as the end of the show. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.